0: Welcome, Grace. Welcome, Grace. Welcome to Grace. Welcome to Grace. Hey, good morning, church. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. We are in the midst of um, a little bit of an experiment. So, if this is your first time with us, you're visiting with us, uh, we're welcome and we're glad to have you. Um, um, but this might be a little bit of an unusual kind of thing, and it, and it, maybe you're like, "What's this guy even talking about?" By the end of it, you'd be like, "No, it's fine." And you'll be like, "Okay, I made too much of a big deal of it." We're in this series that's called uh, "Road and Rubber," and the idea is that. We we want to get to the place where we understand where the rubber meets the road, because oftentimes there are things that we are familiar with, or things that we know, or we suspect are true, but when the rubber meets the road, we act like they aren't true. And and the one thing that uh, most people I think would agree with is like we know we know that prayer works. Right, I see a couple people now. We know that prayer works, that God wants to listen to us when we talk to Him. But there are times where we get so overwhelmed and we get so distracted and in real life happens when the rubber meets the road, we're like, I don't think it's going to help me today. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through this. I don't know that if, I don't know if I tell God what's going on, if He even cares. He's got a thousand other things on His plate to do today and why is He going to worry about me? So when the rubber meets the road, what does prayer look like in real life. And the way that we're going about this is, is is what I think is unusual but you guys probably think it's fine. We're talking about the story of Esther which comes out of uh, the Hebrew Scriptures from the, the Old Testament and it, um, it's, a, it's a really really incredible story. We're talking about that story but we're not like digging into it and dissecting it the way we normally would. I'm gonna summarize part of the book of Esther, part of the story of Esther and then I'm gonna take that as a jumping point to talk about what is this happening have to do with how I pray. Because there's a fascinating thing about the book of Esther that we talked about last week, is that the book of Esther is a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. It's a book in the Bible that doesn't mention praying. And so that sounds a whole lot like real life, doesn't it? That sounds a whole lot like my neighbors and how they like to to deal with things. So we're going to take this real-life story and say, all right, well, I got this real-life story that's happening. It's in the Bible. It doesn't talk about God. But then I've got all these psalms. I've got all these prayers that are already embedded in Scripture, and they just seem like so up in the air and like, what the heck is going on? How does this relate to real life? How does that matter to me? So we're going to try and tie the two things together, all right? So that's what we're doing this morning. We began last week with uh, Esther chapter 1, and if you weren't with us, um, I'd invite you to go back if you'd like to, you can listen to it on YouTube or watch it on YouTube or listen to it on our podcast, Um, wherever you get podcasts, uh, you can catch up with those things. Um, But I'm just going to pick up where we left off at the end of Esther chapter 1, and I'm just going to summarize for you what's happening um, in Esther chapter 2 as we begin, okay? So before we jump into all of that, I'd really like to pray again. So let's pray together. God, you're good. You're good, and in times where we feel isolated from you and in times where um, it seems like everything that we are dealing with and we are struggling with just somehow escapes your notice, remind us that you're close and probably closest in those times. God, this morning as we look at a a chapter in the story of Esther and a chapter out of the psalm, we've got to pray that you would help us to understand how the rubber meets the road. How your word guides us in our conversations with you. And how your spirit brings us close. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Alone. A victim, but I refuse to be a victim. Esther was a, a young girl, and as she grew up, her, her parents passed away, and so she was alone. And it seemed like things were not going well because not only had her parents passed away but her whole nation everybody that she had known had been carried away into captivity and so they were living in what they knew to be a foreign land and the people that she'd been born to were gone so she was alone and maybe she was a victim but she refused to be a victim Uh, She was blessed in that her cousin, Mordecai, actually stepped in and began raising her, and he raised her as his own daughter. So she was alone, but she refused to be a victim. We went over briefly and, and explained briefly the character of the king in that foreign country, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, dirty, filthy, stinking, rich. And if anybody ever forgets who you are, do not hesitate to remind them. Well, King Ahasuerus went off to war to avenge his father's honor, and he lost worse than his dad did. And after he came back home with his tail between his legs, he remembered those permanent tattoos that he got in that drunken party that he'd thrown for himself to remind people how great he is. He remembered that he had put his wife Vashti away, taken the queen off the throne and sent her off, and he was pretty bummed about that. Because there's just a little feature about the laws of how he writes laws is that if he writes a law and signs it with his ring, then it can't be changed, even if he changes his mind later on. And, you know, He missed missed his wife, Miss Vashti, but she was gone. Well, his counselors, who had always given him such great advice, said, hey, here's a great idea. You are king over all of these territories, and you're king over all of these people. There's got to be somebody hot enough to marry you right now. So why don't you throw like a, a party, or not a party, why don't you have like a, a, a beauty contest, and the winners of the beauty contest get the opportunity to please you for one night, and then you can decide out of those ladies who it is that you want to be queen. Like, like you got to try the car before you buy it, right? So why don't we just set it up so everything works out that way? And the king thought, that's a great idea. Dirty, filthy, stinking, rich. And if anybody forgets who you are, don't hesitate to remind them. And so he set it up. And he had these beauty pageants, but it's not real clear how the people were selected, how the young ladies were selected, because Esther was just kind of going around her normal life. She was she was you know orphaned, but she was being raised by Mordecai, but all of a sudden she's being thrown into this beauty contest. She's just a young lady, and really the only thing that qualified her to get the king's attention or the the servant's attention was that she was attractive and she was a virgin. She wasn't already married. And so they pick up this little girl and say, hey, you're going to come and um, we're going to train you for a year and everything you need to know to make sure you can make the king happy and you get one shot and maybe you get to be the queen. And so (laughs) there's this thing where we tend to think that if we suddenly had a windfall of money, all of our problems would be fixed. And this little girl is faced with the opportunity to inherit wealth and power, but at what cost? A cynic knows the value of everything, or the cost of everything, and the value of nothing. But Esther refused to be a victim. It's not clear to me that she really knew so much about her heritage. She knew she was a Jew. She knew she was the Hebrew people, and she knew that the Hebrew people had, had been set apart by this God, by this Yahweh, But she was taken away from the land and and, and the, the people were tied to the land so intimately. Like all of their festivals and things were tied to the city of Jerusalem. They had a temple there and the temple had been destroyed and desecrated and how do you worship this one true God without a temple? And there were rumors that maybe the altar had been rebuilt but the rest of the city was in ruins. And so how do you follow God in those moments? And how do you follow God when you're placed into, forced into compromising situations? She was taken into the harem and trained for a year. And I don't know what that involved. I don't think I need to articulate what a harem implies. But. She did a good job at whatever it was that she did. She earned the favor of the people who were running the harem. And they not only gave her uh, extra ointments and protected her in, in certain situations, they also gave her servants to help take care of her like she was doing a good job. And it comes down to the night where she has the opportunity to go in and spend time with the king. And I don't know if you have much familiarity with Scripture or with the Bible, but there's stuff in there that I don't know how to reconcile. The long and short of it is that before that night, she was in this one house, and after that night, she was in a different house. She had gone from the harem to the house of the concubines. So I'll let you fill in the details. How do you follow God in a compromising situation? How can God be with me when I'm forced to do things I don't want to do? Whatever she did, she did it well. I don't say that to be crass. I say that because the king really liked her over, over everybody else, and he had his pick of everybody in the nation over everybody else. He said, yeah, Esther's the one. Esther's the one I want to be with. Esther's the one that's going to be crowned the queen. And so the king is excited because now he's got a queen to replace the one that he got rid of in his drunken rage, you know, a couple years earlier. His life gets to go back to Normal. As he tries to comfort himself and forget all of the things that he's already screwed up as a king. And he throws a party, and it's Esther's party, and Esther's queen. She refuses to be a victim. That's the first 18 verses of Esther chapter 2. And I hope that it brings up for you some of the same questions that it brings up for me. Where is God in that? I can see why he didn't want his name in the book, right? And yet it's there. And yet the story is there. The young lady is there. How could God possibly address that? Would you open your Bibles with me to to Psalm 77? If you are using one of the blue Bibles, they should be shoved under the chairs in front of you. One of the blue Bibles is on page 611. We're going to be looking at Psalm 77. 611 in the Blue Bibles, Psalm 77. <clears throat> the, the title, the heading to it is, To the Choir Master, According to Juduthan. The psalm of Asaph. And so if you're uncomfortable maybe with some of the content of what we've already been discussing, I'd just like to highlight as we go into this psalm that as you come into ideas and you come into things that you're uncomfortable with and maybe you've never voiced before, maybe you've felt them but you've never allowed yourself to go there, I just want you to understand that this psalm was written for congregational singing. As you think to yourself, how could somebody like even think that personally, privately in their mind, like understand that this was something that the nation of Israel would sing together? We were purposeful in choosing the songs we chose this morning. The songs we chose this morning highlight God's goodness and grace and, and victory and the good things that go on in, a, in our walk with Christ. But this song comes face to face with the darkness. Would you read with me in verse 1? I cry aloud to God. aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Silah. I'll pause there. Um, that word salah is, is just a, is the Hebrew word. And it's one of those words that gets stuck in the Psalms and we don't really know exactly what it means. Um, but the best thing, or the, the best answer that we have is it's, it's either a repeat this, say that again, or it's a wait and dwell on that. In either case, it's, it's a, it's a marinate for a minute. Salah. So let's together... Marinate for a minute about the picture that we've got here. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Have you had those moments, those, those times in your life where you come into, into some kind of trouble? And even if you know that everything might work out okay, there's just something in you that can't settle down. My soul refuses to be comforted. You go to the people who have been comfort in your life. Maybe it's your mom, maybe it's your grandma, maybe it's your best friend. You go to those people and you you pour out, you know, what's going on in your world, and, and your soul, which is normally would take life from those people, just refuses to be comforted. The band-aids that I normally put on my pain just aren't working. And then I remember God, and then I remember that I got to go to a church on Sunday morning and then I remember that I haven't been to church in a couple of years. And when I remember God, I moan. When I think about God, I think about all of the ways that I've already failed Him. I think about all the ways that I've already screwed up and, and remembering God, the one who's supposed to be the source of people's strength, the one who's supposed to encourage people, the one who's supposed to like be a crutch for the weak people in the world. Like when I think about that guy, like I'm just discouraged by that. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Remember, they wanted to sing this together. I don't know, maybe this is just me, and I'm a young guy, so I haven't seen near the suffering that most of you have. But there's times where you're, this is you, right? Where there is no comfort in the world. Where you cry out to God, and you're just like pulling your hair out, and like, he's, it's like where are you? I feel alone. Look with me at verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, Let me remember my song in the night, let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises as an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Salah. I thought I knew who you were, God. I thought I knew the promises that you'd given me. I thought you cared about your children. I thought you'd brought me into your family. But it seems like you walked the other direction. Are you never gonna are you never gonna smile at me again? Is nothing in my life ever gonna go right again? Has your your steadfast love, your chesed, your, your covenant love, the things that you've promised from ages of old, are those things gone now? Have you turned your back on them? Have you forgotten you promised to be gracious to your kids? Are you so mad that you don't have any compassion, God? You hold my eyelids open. I can't even sleep. I can't even get rest. Like if I could just sleep this off, then maybe it would be okay. But you're holding my eyelids open and I have to deal with this. Right? there's something that happens in verse 10 that's a little bit unusual Um, I don't typically like to go here but I'm going to go here because it's going to help you Um, verse 10 is really difficult to translate Um, the when I talk about the Old Testament I usually call it the Hebrew Scriptures and that's because the language that they originally written in is Hebrew and so what we have here is an English translation because it helps us be able to just read it, right? Because we all read it this morning, we understood the ideas that were in there, but the original language is Hebrew. So the English translation here is really difficult. And if you look at any, almost any other translation for verse 10, it's gonna look very different from what's here. Um, the English Standard Version, which is the Blue Bibles and the Story Bibles that we use here, they're, they're really good translations and they're really reliable. Um, for the most part, this is one time where, for whatever reason, they made a different kind of decision. Um, So if you look at the NIV or you look at the NASB, the idea that's conveyed is, is, is very different. Verse 10 here says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, the years of the right hand of the Most High. If you look in a different translation, it's something to the effect of, I thought I trusted God, but he's changed his mind. it seems like God has changed his mind the and and I can see I I I don't want to get into the whole conversation but I can see why they would translate it this way Um, but I don't I think is incorrect I think we go with a different translation for that Because it's a harder idea to wrestle with, right? Uh, I'll appeal to this: the years of the right hand of the Lord Most High. So I'm going to appeal to the fact that God is infinite. I'm going to. So it's either the idea of God's infinite and I'm finite. I'm just stuck here in my little box and I'm trying to understand a big idea and I'm not getting it. That's the idea present in our translation here. And the other is like, it seems God changed his mind, and that's a harder idea to wrestle with, isn't it? There, there's some, those of you that are familiar with some theological, like, ideas, like, that doesn't happen. And we have it here in Scripture that it seems like that might be saying. I will say that the Hebrew's not perfectly clear on that, but the idea points in that direction. It seems like God changed his mind. And either way, doesn't that sound like what we're talking about in the rest of this psalm so far? Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises as an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? It seems like God changed his mind. I thought I could trust him, and I feel like he's betrayed me. So that's a lot of bad news, right? I want, I want to show you, there's some, there some, and they might be your neighbors and maybe you're one too. There's some people who say, well, the, the, the scriptures are fine. They're old, like dead stories for dead people and they don't really have anything for us today. I just want to show you, like, this is legit real life stuff. That, that the times have changed, but humanity, the essence of who we are is the exact same thing. We're dealing with the same problems. We're dealing with the same feelings. We're trying to cope with understanding What is God doing? He's either either got it all under control or he's got none of it under control. And today it feels like he's just letting it spin all by itself. What am I supposed to do? Look with me in verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord, of Yahweh. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. It's 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 not like anything else. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. He says, look, look, I know that what I'm feeling right now feels like it's overwhelming. It feels like a tidal wave. It feels like I'm drowning. But I remember that God has been active in history. See, If if we're not familiar with some of the stories in the Hebrew Scriptures, then we might miss what he's saying here. But but God chose a guy, just a dude. His name was Abram. He lived out in Ur. He was even in the wrong part of the world. And he was a pagan just like every other pagan. And God said, I'm going to use you. I need you to move to a different land. And Abram said, all right, I guess. Cool, man. And he just walked. Like and he kind of stumbled along. Like as I read Abram's story, and as he changes his name to Abraham, like, I'm like, dude, you you're just kind of going along with it, man. You're just kind of go with the flow. Whatever needs to happen is gonna happen. And and like I just am like amazed that he just let stuff happen. Anyway, there's a different story. God chose that guy, that loosey goosey kind of guy and said, "Hey, I'm going to use you and I'm going to make a nation out of you." And so his son, had a son, had a son, had 12 sons, and they all became the tribe of Israel, like a little family, and they go into captivity, well they don't go into captivity, but God sends them into Egypt and they become over time captives. And when they come out, God sets them free and he says, "Hey, I'm going to give you I'm going to set you up to be a country." You're just a family, but I'm gonna set you up to be a country. And he gives the law, he gives them a constitution. He sets them up, and says, Y'all are gonna be a country now. And says, Hey, look, here's all your documents, here's everything you need to know. And the thing that's special about you is that's me. I'm the one who did all this, you didn't do any of it. You were you're I'm the active agent in creating this country. That's what makes you special. So follow me. They're like, cool, all right, whatever you say, man. You got a big voice. <clears throat> And he brings him into the land, because you can't have a country without a land. So he gives him the land. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, God can take Abram and move him across continents to get him to where he needs to be to see the right land. And he can set things up so that infertile families can have kids when they need to have kids at the right time, because that was a whole thing. It was It caused a lot of drama, I'll just tell you. <clears throat> God's working in that too. And then he moves them out of that. When they run out of food, he moves them to a place where they'll have food. And then when they're getting abused and they're, and they're crying out, probably a very similar thing to like how they would express here, they're crying out and saying, God, won't you rescue us? Won't you rescue us? He does. He doesn't just rescue them. He leads them through dry land through a sea. I'm going to get you there. It's like, I would love this. Do you ever get frustrated with your GPS? because they always give the directions like two feet too late. You're like, I gotta turn uh, God gets them there. <laughs> right? He says, hey, you're going to go over there. You're like, uh, how? He's like, here we go. You're just going to walk right through the middle just like that. It's cool. Right? And that army that's chasing you, don't worry about them. They're going to drown. It's cool. Don't worry about it. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder. I will ponder. I'll think about all your work and meditate. Go over again on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. It's holy. It's, it's not like anything else that I've ever seen in the world. Have you ever seen a God that does this? Have you ever seen a God that sets up a country and tells them how they're going to do things and then gives them a land? It doesn't happen. That's why Israel is so persecuted. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. You're holding my eyelids open, God. And I'm thinking about you leading people through dry ground and through a sea. Why can't you just be here? The creation knows its maker's voice. Look at me in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God makes a way through trouble. For Esther, she doesn't know it yet. She's in a dark spot, abandoned, alone. Queen. But maybe not happy about how she got there. Maybe feeling compromised and dirty. Maybe carrying regret. But God makes a way through trouble. And if God makes a trouble, makes a way through trouble, we praise him because God makes a way through trouble. This is his habit. Here's the thing, if you could do it by yourself, you would. They say that, or it is said, you have heard it said, that God will never give you more than you can handle. Nope. God will never give you more than is not is going to drive you away from Him. If he could give you, if you never give you, if I had that promise from God, you're never going to give me more than I could handle, I'd have no reason to turn to him. Like, oh, this seems like it's overwhelming to me, but you tell me that that I can take care of this, so I'm just going to go take care of this, right? And maybe sometimes God holds our eyes open when we're trying to sleep to help us deal with the fact that we need to turn to him. I'm not telling you everything's going to work out right. I'm not telling you that your life is going to be peachy. I'm telling you that God makes a way through trouble. God brought them to the Red Sea. They didn't know it was going to open. It looked like death to them. They got an army behind them. They got an ocean, or they got an army behind an ocean in front of them, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. They can't swim. But God makes a way through trouble. And so... When you think of God and you moan, here's here's where I want to get to. When you think of God and you moan, because we have those days, I don't want to go to church today. I don't want to smile at those people. I don't want to take a shower. When we moan, when we're thinking about God, the invitation is to remember the work that He's done. They're not fairy tales that we learned as a kid. It's a real God acting in history and doing something unique. The reason it seems so strange is because he only did it once. So we praise him because God makes a way through trouble. Would you pray with me? God, there's times where we want to just ignore the problems of our life and we want to pretend like everything's going to be fine or everything is fine and we're just trying to make it work. God, it's, it's intimidating to ask, especially for so many of us in the room. But Lord, would you break our pride down? Would you lead us away from trusting in ourself and what it is that we can handle and would you help us to turn to you? To remember the incredible things that you've done in the past, the, the power and the authority that you have in your creation. And God, would you look, would you help us to look closely at the power and the authority that we have and how little control that we have over the things that even we want to take control for. And God, would you not leave us discouraged there? Yeah, it can feel like that. But God, would you lead us to trust you, to praise you even, because you make a way. And you've made a way to our biggest trouble, a way through our biggest trouble in taking our sin upon yourself. It's in your name we pray, amen.